The Sport Industry Access Podcast, episode 129, How to Dare to Dream Bigger After University. Welcome to another episode of the Sport Industry Access Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who will inspire and encourage you to be the best you can be in your day-to-day life, especially if you have an interest in starting your own business. I hope today's episode can be useful for you. I hope today's episode can be useful to you with regards to your interests and needs. I hope today's episode can be useful to you with regards to your interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's show, this week's special guest is Claire Yosa. Claire is an entrepreneur and author of Dare to Dream Bigger, where she has a passion to support business owners by applying practical strategies so they can grow a business with enthusiasm. I have read this book and I can happily say and proudly say that these principles can be applied when starting a career you want to do, which excites you. So for that reason, it's brilliant to have Claire as a special guest on the show. That's when today's episode, Claire will share her business career journey and explain to you how you can dream bigger after your time at university. Claire, it's great to have you on the show. Please, can you share your career journey to the listeners? When did it all start? Hi, Ed. I'm really thrilled to be with you. And my career journey started when I was a teenager. And my boyfriend at the time built a kit car. And for anybody who doesn't know what that is, back in the 80s, it meant you would take something like a Ford Escort chassis and build a Dutton Phaeton around it. And I didn't really know much about engineering. I loved science. I loved languages. I loved ballet. But it got me really curious about how engines worked. And I went and asked my physics teacher, my GCSE physics teacher, why do engines, the four cylinders in an engine, why do they fire in the order that they do? Because it's a weird order. <laughs> they fire one, three, four, two, one, three, four, two. And my physics teacher couldn't tell me. So this little voice inside me said, fine, I'll go to university and find out. <laughs> so that's why I ended up studying mechanical engineering. I actually wanted to study Russian and German. And I thought, being 17, I thought that would be too easy. So I studied engineering and German instead. Um, I graduated, got my master's. I ended up working in engineering, specializing in Six Sigma and lean manufacturing. So Japanese Kaizen techniques for about 10 years. And then I realized that I needed to change. And because I couldn't find a way to, in a, the way I felt was to escape from where I was, there was a lot of me too kind of stuff going on. I actually went traveling for a year. <laughs> I took a sabbatical. I went to New Zealand, South America. So I did, I lived in Argentina and studied Spanish. I went to Peru. And when I came back, I actually came back to be head of market research at Dyson. So a complete shift. I did that for about four years, qualified as an NLP trainer and realized I wanted to make a bigger difference in the world than I could with bits of shiny, colorful plastic. So I quit 
set up my own business. That was 2003. And that's what I've been doing ever since. I've worked with mentoring senior managers and high achievers on imposter syndrome. I've had seven books published and I've traveled the world. Right, Claire, I've got to go back. This sounds really interesting, but I've got to go back in time. That point when you decided to make that change, a lot of students make a change when they just graduate, if that makes sense. What inspired you to go traveling and what learning experiences supported you with regards to that next step when you worked at Dyson? Well, I decided to go traveling because I really wanted to escape. And when you're in that rabbit in headlights situation, you can't see a way out. And I could have got out by being promoted and going back to the design company arm of the engineering company rather than manufacturing. But my my boss's boss was blocking my promotions. He'd made it clear I would never leave because his bonus was contingent on having two female engineers in the factory of whom I was one. (laughs) So I could see I was never going to leave. And so I took that crazy radical action of fine. I'll negotiate the sabbatical. I'll take that year out. When I came back, they offered me my same job, which, of course, I wasn't going to take. How I got the Dyson job was a friend saw it on the Internet, which back in 2003 was still reasonably new. I had to go to Internet cafes in Peru. There was no 4G. And in my engineering days, I'd actually done what I now call guerrilla market research. I'd actually coordinated getting 300 car drivers together in Stuttgart and a group of us who spoke bilingual German had interviewed them to find out a particular problem with an engine because the marketing team didn't speak the engineer's language. So I had a bit of a reputation for that. So I took a risk and I sat there in the internet cafe, pulled together a CV and It was one of these synchronicities where somebody who later became a very good friend happened to pick up the CV from the website, walk it around to the woman that became my boss and said, look, you've just got to interview her. There's a spark here. And the rest, as they say, is history. So on paper, I was not qualified, but I felt excited. And I was able to pull together an application that got them excited too. So the impetus for going traveling was the need to escape because I'd backed myself into a career corner and I couldn't see another way out. You know, me now, I can see plenty of other ways out, but when you're in it, it's really hard. And then when I'd done that traveling, which taught me, well, it taught me Spanish. <laughs> it taught me how not to get kidnapped. You know, um, there were a couple of times where I had to use my Spanish to say my husband and his business colleagues are waiting for me at the station and I'm late when taxi drivers were driving me through industrial estates in Peru, which is always a really dodgy sign. Um, It taught me to trust my intuition and it taught me how self-sufficient I was because going traveling on your own as a woman, even as a guy, is a big thing. As a woman, it's a big thing. And back then it really wasn't done. So it taught me to plan. It taught me to dream. And it taught me to get off my backside and take action because that trip was not going to happen on its own. I needed to make it happen. Gosh, Claire, I really do hope the listeners taking this on board because you're, you're really indicating the different life experiences and skill sets you learn throughout the journey. Just going back quickly from an educational perspective, reflecting to where you are now, how has your educational journey supported you? Well, <laughs> I'm a stubborn old mule. <laughs> So that's how it supported me is when I was doing my GCSEs and my physics teacher couldn't give me the answer about car engine combustion order. I went to a sixth form college and did A-level physics there. 
I had two teachers, one of whom I'm still in touch with, who's just the most amazing, inspirational, slightly crazy, very eccentric guy. The other of whom was very sensible, who sat me down at the end of my first term and said, Claire, are you really sure you want to do engineering? Because you achieve your results by sheer dogged hard work and you have no natural aptitude. (laughs) At which point I had two choices. I could either go, okay, Mr. Stevens, yes, you're right. Or I could do what I did, which is right. I'm going to prove him wrong. And I spent the next five years proving him wrong and I got first. And that was to prove Mr. Stevens wrong. So I guess what that's taught me is there's a very strong element of me when I'm told I can't do something. Who says, Okay, I'll find a way if I really want to do it, I will find a way to make it happen. I believe anything is possible. But like everybody else, I also do still struggle with stuff like imposter syndrome. So it becomes this double edged internal critic fight. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Just from going back to your journey now, because you mentioned it very, very briefly. When was the moment when you decided to get into writing? (sighs) When I was six. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) When I was six. But I didn't do anything about it properly. Because I, yeah, I didn't do anything about it properly till about three years ago. Here's the thing. When I was 15, I had a wonderful English teacher. And I loved writing stories. I'd written stories since I was six. Um... And this teacher gave me a B for a story I'd written, which for me, I'm a perfectionist, so B felt like a failure. Now, I can see with hindsight of time, that's a ridiculous perspective. But for me at 15, that was devastating. And she wrote the word contrived under the story. I didn't even know what contrived meant. I had to go and look it up. And, and basically, it means it's like in Dallas when Bobby Ewing isn't really dead and Sue Ellen wakes up to find him in the shower. That kind of contrived ending. I picked up a belief that I couldn't write a story. I had had five books published, how-to books on everything from meditation and mindfulness through to gratitude, and then how to change the world with Dare to Dream Bigger. But I didn't think of myself as an author until two years ago, when the drive to write my first novel was so strong, I had to do my own inner clearing work. And I did it. I felt no different. I cleared that limiting belief if I can't write a story. I'd never even told my three kids a made-up story. That's how strong this limiting belief was. I felt no different. I felt absolutely gutted that it hadn't worked. And two days later, I drafted seven novels. And four months later, the first was in the book. And readers describe it as unputdownable. Sorry, the first was in the shops, not in the book. Yeah, and people described it as unputdownable. So I'd cleared out that limiting belief. And now I finally see myself as an author. Do you know what? I find this really interesting. And just from a, a perspective for the students listening in, what skill sets do you need to be a writer? And if that makes sense, like, could you remember that process of you writing those books with confidence? Yeah. So when I'm writing a how-to book, I always make sure it's something I know inside out. I don't have to be the world's best at something. But I have to know I know how to teach it because basically in a how-to book, you're teaching something. The person needs to have created some kind of shift, either who they are or something they can do by the end of the book. So traditionally, the way I will do it is I'll run a course. I'll either run some face-to-face workshops or I'll run an online course and I'll run it a few times, pick up every question, every bit that people didn't understand And that's what I use as the basis for the book. And I'm doing that right now. I'm publishing a book this year 
on how to ditch imposter syndrome. And that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm having an inner circle of about 20 people who I'm going to be working with, with masterclasses, Q&A sessions, as I'm writing the book so that they can try the material on the size. They can tell me what's working. I can see from the confused expressions what's not. And it helps me to do something I call getting your inner genius pajama ready. Okay. Because when you're working with somebody face to face, say you're a personal trainer, you can see somebody's facial expression on whether they get something or whether they're just trying to do it to humor you. When they are sitting at home in their pajamas, which is when most reading happens, you're not there to answer those questions or explain the things that don't make sense. So my background in engineering with the Six Sigma and the lean manufacturing, my background in market research and my background as an NLP trainer, so knowing how to teach means I know how to get that inner genius pajama ready. So the book is unputdownable. It creates the transformation on a reliable, consistent basis. And then if you're writing it, the rest is just down to expressing your voice so that your reader feels you're sitting next to them talking to them. This really relates now, Claire, to today's podcast topic relating to one of your books. How can, how can students dare to dream bigger after university? So the, the hard thing, even after uni... And if you're listening to this, if you ever feel this way, you are not alone, is we still don't know what we want. We might have spent three, four, five years studying, working fairly hard, and you suddenly get to that point where you're applying for jobs. And it's very easy to do what people expect you to do, because that's the way the whole system is set up. You've got the career support, you've got the jobs fairs, you've got the standard career progression in your industry. But I would strongly suggest do something that makes your heart sing. You might need to take a job to get some training, to get some experience. But if it doesn't make your heart sing, life is too short. Yeah, at the beginning of your career, that's the easiest time to take risks because you've got your student debt, which is horrible. But you probably don't have a mortgage. You probably don't have a family to support yet. Now is the time. If you want to do crazy stuff like work internationally and travel, if you want to buck the trend, when you leave uni, it's by far the easiest time to break the rules. Does that make sense, Ed? Absolutely. I'm shaking my head. I wish you could see my <laughs> face expression now because just to put people in the loop now, I met Claire at a um, summer in November, last November in 2018, and she gave me a free copy of this book. And literally, first week of December, whilst having the flu, I picked up this book and I read it within a week, did all the exercises, and that is why she's on the show. Claire, would you mind going in a little bit more detail about the book, if that makes sense? That would be great. Of course. So, Dare to Dream Bigger. And the reason I wrote this book, it's the book I wish I had had when I first set up my own business. Because it's not just about running a business, it's about really allowing yourself to, to grow and to make the difference you're here to make. And I talk about how changing the world is not so much about what you do, it's about who you allow yourself to become. And most of us allow ourselves to become a version of us that's constrained by a really tight box. It might be our limiting beliefs, it might be other people or society's expectations, but that box stops us growing. It's like, have you ever seen in Japan, sometimes they grow melons and they're square? Have you ever seen those, Ed? No. <laughs> 
So they, they put melons when they're small inside boxes and they grow novelty square melons because the melon cannot grow to its natural, fully ripe round shape if there's a box around it. So you get square melons, which is surreal. Yeah. Yeah. We're the same. Yeah. So my intention with Dare to Dream Bigger was to help people to ditch those boxes. And I take people through the process of getting clarity about what it is you want. And a lot of us kind of search for our life purpose, which feels very noble, but it's also a brilliant excuse for not taking action. You don't have to get the perfect, what do I want, who do I want to be? You just need to get the the next few steps. So you start with that clarity, you move on to confidence, which is about clearing those inner blocks and the ways that you might self-sabotage, which we all do. Then the credibility is how to establish yourself as credible as an expert in whatever it is you want to be doing. Looking at the connection because nobody grows a career or a business on their own. So it's how to connect with people who you can help, people who can help you. Then the next stage is creativity, which is really the inspired action. So if you were leaving university, for example, the creativity is how can I be a bit different in my job applications or how could I choose a career path that really fits with who I am? It's Thinking outside of that box in a way that's almost childlike because you don't have those limits and blocks and preconceptions. That's fun. The next stage is commitment, keeping going even if you're not in the mood. And the final stage that's woven all the way through is celebration. It's how to turn your inner critic into your biggest cheerleader by celebrating even what I call your micro successes, rather than beating yourself up if something doesn't go completely the way you'd hoped. Claire, that is fantastic. I really do hope the listeners take this all board because the one thing I've experienced and enjoyed reading the book is it's providing that game plan and what you said right from the start by taking action. Out of interest, what have you been up to recently? Well, I'm (laughs) the power of focus. I'm like so many people running their own business, um, entrepreneurs. I've got huge shiny object syndrome. So I'm very creative and very practical. But when I have a new idea, I do love to chase it, which means I end up spinning far too many plates. So this year, what I've been doing is being utterly ruthless. And this year, I am doing just two things, which is kind of a (gasps) for me. (laughs) It's just two things. So I've been working on my author mastermind. So I've, I'm creating a website called from expert to author.com where they're going to be resources for people who have got that expertise and experience who want to write a book that can help people and also grow their business. So I'm running the author mastermind in March and September. And the other thing I'm doing is publishing the book that I've been meaning to write for 10 years on imposter syndrome. And that is going to have courses and workshops around it as well. So that one comes out in June. This sounds really exciting. And it's great that the focus is kicking in. Like, even if it's two things that I like just listening to you, they're two big projects. And uh, I wish you all the best with that. Just reflecting now, Claire, what have you enjoyed the most from your career journey looking back right now? I absolutely love the traveling. I absolutely did. And there is there's one really big regret and I don't think regrets are very helpful, but one, you know, when you, you make a decision and you can feel like there's two versions of you and one actually went off on the yes and the other one went off on the no. When I finished my second engineering role, I was on a graduate training scheme. The chief engineer 
for that company offered me the chance to be his technical assistant, which meant I would have reviewed every patent application, every engineering project that the company was considering, and I would have been the one to filter out whether he should be reading them and calling people in for meetings to invest in them or whether they should be ditched. That would have had me getting bilingual in Italian, as well as I already had the German at the time. Um, It would have had me traveling the world with him and it would have skyrocketed my career. And there are two reasons I turned it down. One was a guy (laughs) because he was in England and I was in Germany at the time. And we actually split up three months later. So that was a complete waste. And the other was imposter syndrome. Who am I to take on a role that sounds this incredible when I'm only 25? Just on that note, then, looking back, do you feel you've made choices which you've overcome that situation? Definitely. Definitely. I also believe that the choices we make get us to where we need to go. Um, But I can see that the me that said yes to that opportunity, you know, a little bit kind of like Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy style, is living in a very different universe. You know, she probably isn't writing books that help people to change their lives and change the world. She's probably some company CEO somewhere. I think the key is if you've got to make a decision, what I now do is I do something called the 80th birthday test. So if I can't decide which option to choose or whether to do something or not, I imagine I'm at my 80th birthday. I'm surrounded by my loved ones. Everybody's had to help me blow out the candles because there were too many of them. And I'm looking back at the me making the decision I'm currently struggling with. And I use my body to feel into, does that decision really matter? And I imagine the me that spent the next 60, 50, 40 years on option A, the me that spent that time on option B. And I ask my body, not my monkey mind, what the difference is. And what I'm looking for there is a sense of excitement and relief. And often there is no difference at all, because often the decisions that we think are huge in the grand scheme of things don't really matter. But sometimes you'll go, okay, that is scary right now. But the 80-year-old me says, hey, girl, you did it. (laughs) You got this. Come on, feel how great that feels having done it 30 years later. And that's how I make my decisions now. So I don't let imposter syndrome get in the way. I trust that if somebody offers me an opportunity, it's because they think I can actually do it. Because who am I to say they're stupid and wrong? (laughs) And if in doubt, I ask the 80-year-old me. Claire, that is fantastic. And I couldn't agree more with what you just said, because that example you've just mentioned is in the book. And I do apply it to myself. I feel like we're at a great stage of the interview where I'd like to finish with an inspirational question. And you've provided some great information relating to this question. But if you had to put it and sum up in some little bullet points, this would be fantastic. What advice would you give to university students who are unsure what to do from a career perspective after university? Okay, I would look at your heroes and look at the routes they took. Who is it in your industry that you think, I really admire them? If there's nobody in your industry you admire, then I'd look at whether you want to be in that industry. Yeah? But look at people who you consider successful, where you think in 10 years, 20 years time, I want to be doing that kind of thing. And look at the scary choices they made, because people who get to that level, whatever that level is for you, people who get to that level don't do it by doing what everybody else did. So don't be afraid to take risks, be bold and do something that's different. 
But also don't be afraid to do the standard thing of getting on that graduate training scheme, because for some careers, that could be the perfect next step for you. That is great, Claire. I really do hope the listeners take that on board. How can people interact with you online? I'm at ClaireYosa.com, C-L-A-R-E-J-O-S-A.com. And they can find my books on Amazon just by searching for my name. That is great to all the listeners listening in. All those links will be on my website relating to this blog post. Claire, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ed. And I wish everybody who's listening, good luck. And yeah, keep Ed posted on what action you take as a result of this podcast episode. If I've helped to inspire you in any way, then thank you so much for listening. What a really interesting podcast chat with Claire and I know I've broken the rules that this podcast chat isn't sport industry related but it is career related without a doubt when I read Claire's book and where she nicely gave her a copy when I met her at the Youpreneur Summit and I read it literally from cover to cover it provided me that clarity and having clarity in where you want to go what you want to do and how you want to add value is vital because if you just want to get a job in sport at the end of the day a job is just a type of income right it's where you want to add real value where you build a career from it you meet amazing people on the way but most importantly you become an expert in that field so I hope this podcast show really gives you that clarity in where you want to go in the sports industry and really take on board what Claire said with regards to getting yourself out there after university, be fearless and just do what you want to do where you can add value. So look, take on board what Claire said, apply it to your sports career journey today and good luck. Now, as always, at the end of each interview, I like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Claire said, don't be afraid to take risks, be bold and do something that is different and look for people you consider successful.